This is Indian Noir, India's most critically acclaimed horror and crime storytelling podcast. Follow Indian Noir on at Indian Noir on Instagram. You are now listening to the complete season one of His Night Begins. Gulab was watching a red balloon rise up in the air when she was kidnapped from Chor Bazaar. Earlier that day, her mother had arrived at her bedside with a box of sweets. She heard her mother's beautiful voice through a veil of dreams and heavy sleep. Wake up, Beatty, wake up! Her bangles jingled and her voice grew louder. Wake up! What is it, mummy? I want to sleep, Gulab said from under the covers. Wake up, baby. It's your results. You have made us proud. Uh, what? She said, rubbing her eyes. Sixth rank. You are a clever little bunny, her mother said. Uh, really? Yes, baby. Her mother gave her a big hug. Gulab's father appeared at the door, beaming with pride. She couldn't believe her ears. She was a hard-working student, and she had done well in her 10th and 11th grade exams. But to get a rank in year 12 was just mind-blowing. The three of them sat on the bed, enjoying the sweets. They hugged and laughed relishing the triumph. Gulab inherited her mother's beautiful features and her father's height. She had fine cheekbones, cherub lips, olive skin, and eyes that seemed to smile. She exuded a warm charisma which brightened any room she walked into. Her parents worked hard to provide her the best education. They sacrificed a lot to make sure she had everything she needed. Gulab was overjoyed to see their smiles. An hour later, some of the neighbors dropped by to congratulate her. The president of the Residents Association said he was going to organize a function to celebrate the occasion. Her grandparents and uncles and aunts called, telling her how proud they were. It was a perfect start to the day. Her father had promised her a new LCD TV if she did well in her exams so she could watch all her favorite dance programs. Gulab was very fond of dancing and she trained in Bharatanatyam and hip-hop dancing from a very young age. Her mother used to tell her that when she was a kid, Gulab would stand in front of the TV and move to the music. She had won several dance competitions at school and at interstate level. Some of her best friends had formed a dance group called Vitality. She had been practicing with them during the break after the exams to audition for a TV program called Dance Dance. The big prize was an all-expenses-paid trip to the New York Academy of Dance. They were about to leave for shopping when her father got called into work to address a critical IT issue. You go ahead, he said to them. 
He kissed Gulab's forehead before he left. Congratulations once again, baby. You deserve it. Gulab and her mother hailed a cab, and it took them nearly half an hour to negotiate the traffic and reach the main road to the city. The cab driver was tuned to a station that played devotional songs. Gulab and her mother chuckled at the driver's attempts to sing along with the voice on the radio. He moved his head back and forth in tune with the music, but his voice was not holding up to the high notes. At their destination, they barely managed to get out of the vehicle because of the crowd. Then they were swept into a sea of humanity that thronged the ancient street. Chorbazar, or the Street of Thieves, was named thus because in the past it used to be the hangout of the underbelly of the society. A hub for stolen goods, brothels, bars, illegal gambling houses and fight clubs. In the last decade, it had shed the nefarious reputation and transformed into a popular destination for electronic goods. Several major chains had started their stores and coexisted with family-owned businesses that mostly provided electrical services and repair work. While it was a popular destination for tourists during weekdays, bargain hunters thronged the place during weekends, looking for the latest and cheapest in electronics. Gulab was not a big fan of crowds, nor was her mother. As they negotiated the busy street, they scanned the window displays to spot good deals. Somebody lit a firecracker on the rooftops, and the sound made everyone jump. There had been a spate of bomb blasts in the city recently, and as usual the police were unable to find the culprits or give any explanations. Kulab's mother tightly squeezed her hand. Some of the children in the crowd started crying. When the noise stopped, she smiled at Gulab and let go of her hand. The crowd surged and pushed against each other. For a second, Gulab lost sight of her mother. A red balloon slowly rose in the air. Gulab watched it with a smile. Suddenly, someone pressed a piece of cloth on her mouth. She tried to scream. Her legs gave way first. Someone put their arms under her armpits and held her up. She reached out to her mother, but all she could see was a wall of bodies. The red balloon got stuck in the clutter of power lines above. A woman, she could tell from the bangles pressed against her arm, guided her to a side alley. Her attacker stank of turmeric and fish. Come on, Betty. This way. Don't vomit on the streets, the woman said. Mommy, Gulab managed to say as the strength drained from her body. Her vision blurred. The last thing she saw was the dark alley. Someone screamed her name somewhere. And then there was silence. Virad Nariman, 45 years old, skin the color of dark cloud, six feet five inches of solid muscle from doing Olympic lifts every day for the last two decades, shaved head, 
He waited outside a seedy bar on a seedy street in a seedy part of Indraprastha city. The mark was inside having shots. Jaeger bombs by the look of it. Drink up, Chuthia. This will be your last one, he thought. It was raining lightly, even though the sky looked like a herald of doom and gloom. It had taken a while for things to get worse in the city, but when they did, boy did it stink like a septic tank that hadn't been pumped out in a while. The citizens of this fine city, this proud state, this piece of crap country, had gotten lazy on their Bollywood rom-coms and flat-screen TVs and their stupid soap operas, and they didn't care who they voted for. And lo and behold, the emperors are politicians who are criminals, or politicians who loved criminals. People like Virat profited from it. He was one of the best hitmen in the business, and business was booming. But he wasn't here to fix up the political system. He was here to wipe out a scumbag, a piece of shit whose head might bring him vital information. Someone raped Virat's baby girl. His 17-year-old angel Anya. The only thing he loved. The little bundle he had kissed many times over at Gayatri Devi Hospital. The princess he took to school. Her tiny hands in his enormous ones. The lovely girl who used to parade before him in her new clothes and makeup. Someone raped his girl and chopped her head off and left her in a dumpster in a busy part of town, about a kilometer away from where she lived with her mother and her brother. Virat searched desperately, used all his contacts in the underbelly of Indraprastha city and interstate. All he heard were rumors. Nothing solid, just like the cops who investigated the case. But that did not surprise Virat. The police were useless as tits on a bull. One day, Damalingam Chetihar, a regular client and friend, called him. Viru, I know who kidnapped your girl. I know who threw her in the back of a van and took her to that terrible fate. Who are these monsters? Birat said. I'm not sure how organized or big they are, but it looks like Anya was grabbed by some small players who supply to a trafficking network. Given Anya's lack of enemies, Birat had concluded that the deed was done either by one of his old enemies or a sex trafficking racket. How did you come across this information? Birat inquired. That I can't tell you. I understand. There was a moment of awkward silence on the phone. Birat picked up the cue. I want these bastards. What do you want in return? Birat said. 
The thing about criminals is that there is always a catch. Nobody does anything out of compassion or for friendship. Everything is business. Birat, blinded by rage, buried in guilt and sadness, his face sticky with angry tears and his mouth stinking with alcohol, waited patiently on the line. You kill someone for me, and the information is yours. He could almost see Chetiar smile on the other side of the line. Virad was a pro. He had a 100% success rate, and the criminals loved him for that. And no one was going to pass up a chance to utilize his services for free. Who is the mark? And this part was important, because Virad did not kill women, children, or innocent people. He had a strict policy about that, a policy his uncle, his guru, had drilled into his brain. He is a pedophile. He he molested... Chetiar stopped for a second. My niece, this is personal. Meet me at the usual place, Virat said. Chetiar sent one of his men with the details to the Idea Pavan Vegetarian House on 31st Street, and Virat was on to the mark like a bloodhound within 24 hours. Virat never took someone's word blindly, so he always investigated whether the mark was as evil as the client made him out to be. In this case, it proved right, because Virat had followed the tall, handsome family man with curly black hair and a t-shirt and jeans to the local primary school, where the man snapped photos using a telescopic lens from the back of his car. Virat was certain he was not into nature photography. He watched him for another week, learning his daily routines and his movements, and finally decided that Saturday was as good a day as any because the prick drank at the holy cow and shared disgusting photos with his perverted friends and laughed and carried on till midnight before he drove back to his place to do whatever the fuck he did. He was a twisted asshole that deserved to die, and Virat was desperate for information. He wanted the blood of his daughter's killers real bad. He was truly motivated to get this done. The streets next to the Holy Cow Bar were usually empty. Cops did not bother anyone in this part of town because they were paid not to. People rarely walked the streets because getting mugged at every street corner just wasn't their thing. When the mark stepped out of the bar, Mirad jumped in his car. The rain had stopped. The street was a mirror reflecting the neon sins of a decaying city. Faint music escaped from the closed doors of nefarious joints nearby. Bars, whorehouses, and gambling dens. Virat followed the sedan like a beast creeping up to its prey in his dark green Jeep Wrangler. The pedophile's car turned a corner, sped a bit before it stopped at a red light. Perfect, Virat thought. There were no other cars around. 
he stopped his jeep right next to the mark, jumped out of the car, walked straight up to the driver's open window and smacked the side of his head with a jawbreaker. A cigarette case-sized piece of rock secured to a steel bangle that Virat used to knock the living daylights out of people. The man didn't even have time to act surprised. Virat opened the door, dragged him out of the seat, threw him over his huge shoulders, and placed him in the back seat of the jeep. He sealed his mouth shut with the tape and tied his hands behind him, just in case. The unconscious victim and Virat took a ride to the woods in the outskirts of the city, a popular dumping ground which was the stupidest place to hide evidence because it was the first place the police searched. You had to go deeper, much deeper into its dark heart to find a safe spot. Virat's head started to hurt. He was getting bad headaches after Anya's death. Virat was pissed off that the tablets he had taken in the evening hadn't fixed the pain. Maybe he needed to take them every hour. He pulled out a little flask of whiskey and took a sip. Then he popped a few more tablets and drank some more. The headlights sliced through the gloomy night in search of Virat's destination, a place where the woods ended and the swarms began. When he reached there, the creatures of the night greeted an old and familiar friend with incessant chirping. Virat didn't want to know what lived in the murky waters or the tall shrubs that surrounded him. Some more whiskey to calm the hammer pounding away inside his head. He pulled the pedophile out and threw him to the ground with a thud. A combination of the hard landing and the nauseating scent from the surroundings woke him up. Virat pulled his gun out, a compact weapon that fitted in the palm of his hands with just two bullets in it. A .38 Derringer. Its metal gleamed in the lights of the car. What Virat liked about this particular gun was the fact that you had to get up close and personal with someone to do the deed. He liked that, the intimacy just before he pulled the trigger. He felt the gun's enamel handle and savoured its texture for a moment. The man made muffled sounds and rolled around. The terror in his eyes threatened to silence the night. He tried to crawl away on his back. You won't molest anyone anymore, Virat said. He shot him in the groin. It was loud, but as far as the universe was concerned, it was an insignificant sound. The scumbag groaned in pain. Virat watched him coldly. He had heard it many times before. It was not the scream of an innocent man. This guy deserved it. All the guys he had killed deserved it. They were rapists, murderers, and drug dealers. Even hitmen like him. His Anya, his gorgeous baby, was innocent. She didn't deserve to die. 
He placed the gun just above the left ear of the squirming molester and finished the job. Then he took out his toolbox from the SUV and patiently removed all the teeth from the dead man's mouth. He placed them into a cloth bag. Then he chopped off the tips of his finger and placed them into the same bag. He hated working in the stench and heat and among the nightmares that lurked in the swamp. But this was sacred killing ground. A place where he could work undisturbed. And a safe place that was off the grid. A place where he could get rid of all evidence. Someday, he would have to change location. He would have to abandon the swamp. But it was safe for now. He poured gasoline over the body and burned it. He sat on the hood of the SUV and watched it reduce to a charred mess. The smell of satisfaction was in the air. Virat smiled. After a while, he scooped the remains with a spade and dumped it in the swamp, certain that teeth and claws and eyes that glowed in the dark would find their way to it, and before long his victim would be a speck of ash stuck to the reeds. He went back to the car and sipped some more whiskey. Then he switched off the lights and tried to sleep. He was tired. His headache was back with a vengeance. There was no way he was going to drive back without a break. And he didn't fancy walking into the woods that bordered the swamp at night with just a torch to get rid of the contents in the cloth bag. Sleep did not come easy. Ever since Anya's death, he was not able to rest his mind. He had killed hundreds of people in gruesome ways and never lost sleep over any of them. But the sight of his dead princess, her broken bloody body, and the plastic bag with her head in it, destroyed him. He was sure it would stay with him for the rest of his life. He closed his eyes to shut out the terrible memory. He woke up just after sunrise and got out and looked round. The swamp was no less frightening in the partial light of the dawn. He thought he saw something, half man, half crocodile moving in the water. He slowly walked into the dark shadows of the trees. He scattered the teeth and buried the fingertips at different spots. He was a sweaty mess when he got back into the car. He drove till he reached the main road and checked for phone reception. He texted Chetiar. The job is done. He hoped when he got home, a small envelope with names would be waiting. He smelled blood in the air as he drove towards the jungle that was the city. Nirmala was waiting for him. He could tell from the lingering scent of Chanel number no. 5. She smelled like a goddess and made love like one. But today... He was not in need of a goddess. He wanted a demon. He wanted her to bathe him in sin before he ventured into the street and danced in rage. The envelope was under the potted plant on the right-hand side of his door. He picked it up and then decided not to open it. When he entered the room, she was on the couch pouring a glass of whiskey. She had long raven-black hair, green eyes that were always searching. 
Her cheekbones were so perfect, Virat often suspected someone had carved her from a piece of marble. She had a curvy body that she kept fit through yoga, and most importantly, she knew how to pick lingerie. Darling, I knew you would need one. How do I know that? How? You tell me. Is it because I'm your angel? Virat placed the envelope and walked to the sink to wash his face. He opened the tap and splashed cold water on his face. The mild throbbing in his head seemed to respond well to Nirmala's presence. Darling, what is this? Why are you so rude to your honey? Nirmala was an emergency room doctor. He met her one night when he went to the emergency room to get his arm fixed. She did a great job on his arm. When he thanked her for the fantastic job, she winked at him. A few days later, on a rainy Friday night, some piece of shit junkie was trying to rob Nirmala in an alley, pulling at her hair, punching her, and threatening to rip off her head if she didn't give him all her cash. Virat had just stepped out of Kabir's Inn, a dodgy joint that promoted high-stakes pool games. He had excellent vision in the darkness, a skill he had developed from befriending shadows, and he moved like a cat. As soon as he saw what was going on, he rushed the perpetrator, grabbed him in a bear hug, and pulled him away from Nirmala. He then broke the man's ankle by stomping on it. Virat threw him on the ground and switched off his light bulb with a swift kick to the side of his face. He then embraced the hysterical Nirmala, who had grabbed the lid of a nearby trash can to protect herself. He held her firmly until she calmed down. A bond was forged between them. It was not love, it was lust. It was the fact that Virat could stand in front of a train for her. His broad shoulders, rock-hard arms, and his muscular chest was a safe harbour for her. Presently, he came back to the couch, gave Nirmala a brief smile, and took a sip of the whiskey. Thank you. She could never ask how his day was. Instead, she took his pants off. Mary John, Virat said fondly. He watched the envelope. She slowly unbuttoned his shirt. Angel. She kissed him on the lips and then slowly circled her tongue on his neck. He was going to open the envelope and he was going to kill whoever had the misfortune of being on that piece of paper. But first, he was going to make love to Nirmala like an animal. When Gulab woke up, she screamed and called out to her mother. Her voice echoed in the empty room. She stood up and walked around, slowly bumping into the walls in the darkness. She couldn't find a door. She didn't know how many days had passed or where she had been brought to. She fell on the ground crying. Girls kidnapped from the city either ended up dead or missing forever. The thought of not seeing her family again broke her heart. A few hours later, someone switched on a small bulb in the room. A trapdoor opened above her, 
and the ladder descended to the floor. Gulab smelled food. A woman's bangles and anklets jingled. She was fair, overweight, and wore a sari covered in stains and flour. Her frizzy hair was worn in a bun, and her forehead sported a large black bindi. Her eyes were devoid of kindness. She sat down in front of Gulab and asked her to open her mouth. No, Gulab said. Get me out of here. Send me back to my parents. I'm sure it's only a matter of time before the police will get you. Gulab feigned bravery. The woman sneered and pressed some chapathi and dal against her mouth. No, Gulab said and spat at the woman. The woman slapped her hard across the face. If you don't eat this now, I will leave you starving for two days. Gulab could tell from her voice that she meant business. Eat, the woman barked. Gulab looked at her with fearful eyes. If you don't start eating, I will have to force it down your throat, and it won't be pleasant. Tears rolled down Gulab's cheeks. She opened her mouth and bit into the food. She chewed slowly, watching the woman. Who are you? She asked. You don't need to know that. Why did you kidnap me? Silence. Why don't you speak? I have other things to do once I have fed you. The woman wiped Glob's mouth and stood her up. See the hole in the ground? Do all your business there. There is a tap near it. Gulab thought she was going to vomit. Somebody will be here soon and arrest you, Gulab said, her voice wavering. Keep telling yourself that, girl. Why are you doing this? You are full of questions. I think I deserve to know. Are you going to kill me? What a waste of all this effort. Then, you will go to a lovely home where people will treat you nicely. You will like it there. You will have lots of friends. I'm not stupid. You're going to sell me, aren't you? You will be leaving us this evening. Answer me. You're going to sell me? The woman climbed up the ladder, pulled it up, and looked down at Gulab. I will leave the light on for you. Do you have children? No, we can't have any. The woman said abruptly, as if it had slipped carelessly from her mouth. She closed the door. Gulab studied the light from the bulb. She wished she could see the sun. She wanted to get rid of the darkness in her life. The old man was seated in a wheelchair on the porch of his wooden house, which was falling apart. He was chewing pan and looking at the horizon, seemingly oblivious to Vidat, who was walking up the driveway. Uncle Arya, someone could sneak on you and cut your neck if you stay lost in your daydreams, Virat said. 
I heard you as soon as you stepped out of your car, Arya said, shaking his head from side to side, flushing a red, pan-stained grin. Well, you're a wily old dog, and you still haven't lost your touch. Grad hugged his uncle. I am losing my sight and hard of hearing. Let's just say I wouldn't last out there for too long in the business of killing. You were the best. I sure was. I trained you and now you keep up my name shining. Virat grinned. He pulled up a stool and sat on it next to the old man. Does the nurse visit you every day? Virat inquired. She comes five days a week and hangs out here for a couple of hours every day. That's good. Relying on someone else to wipe your bum isn't exactly good, son. Virat placed a hand on Arya's shoulder. At least your auntie Saroja is not around to see all of this. A tear escaped the old man's eyes. Mirad had never seen him cry. This man, one of the top hitmen in his time, now a helpless creature, restricted to his motorized wheelchair. Arya had rescued him from his wretched home and taught him the skills to put a man to sleep forever. You'll be good to your family, son. It is very important. Mirad did not respond. How is Ravina? She is good. Any chance of you guys patching things up? No, I don't think so. Anya... I'm sorry I couldn't come to the funeral. It's okay. I understand. You were ill. She was a little angel, Virat grunted. I remember when she was a little girl. We used to go to the fair and she would eat lots of candy floss. Her mouth would be red as cherries, and Ravina would give you a speech on how you were teaching her bad habits, Virat added. Yes, yes, yes. Arya was half laughing, half crying. She would be sick in the tummy all night long, and I would have to stay up with her, Virat said. Good memories, those. Virat sighed. She was a good girl. <laughs> she didn't deserve it. I'm going to do something about it. What will you do? I have found the names of some people who might be responsible. I'm going to track them down and kill them. The old man looked at the floor. Then he coughed. When he stopped, Virat wiped the drool on the side of his old uncle's face. Thanks, Arya said, grabbing his nephew's hand. It's the right thing to do. 
Pirat noted. I knew I would have your blessing. That day when your father beat your brother to death in front of your eyes, I clearly remember it. You had a bloodlust in your eyes that I knew would never diminish. It's still in you, son. It can drive you to achieve anything you want. Get to anyone. There are some powerful people involved. I might not make it back. An alcoholic murderer of a father and a religious whore of a mother couldn't destroy you. I'm sure those fuckers won't be able to touch a hair on you. I appreciate everything you've done for me. Everything you've taught me. I did what I could, son. They sat watching the evening sky turn blood red. Naveen Nariman, social activist and CEO of NGO Devi that provided shelter for victims of sex slavery, had just returned home from work and was putting the kettle on when the doorbell rang. Ravina was in her early forties and looked like the beautiful models that played mothers in television ads for household appliances. Her mixed Indian-Persian heritage had blessed her with looks that still turned heads. She was not expecting to find the man she had kicked out of her home and her life standing there. She had let him stay in touch with their daughter Anya and son Praveen, but refused to engage with the man herself. What do you want? Virat was wearing a brown leather jacket. A tight white cotton shirt that said FCUK clung to his muscular body. Ravina noticed that he still wore his favorite pair of jeans. I'm not letting you in. That's not what I came here for. Davina couldn't believe that she was naive enough to fall for this demon when she was young, when every cell in her body begged her to run for the hills. Anya. Anya is dead. Don't you know that? You went and picked up her headless body, didn't you? Do you need more proof? I. I should have kept my children away from you. Hell, I should have never had children with you. Do you know where Praveen is these days? He's in some drug den shooting up to get rid of the pain of his sister's death. Virat sighed and looked down the suburban street that screamed of ordinariness. You are always making excuses for him. He was always a junkie who refused to listen to his parents. How dare you? If he is a two-bit junkie now, it is because of you, because of the pain you put us through. You have said enough. Virad raised his hand. Ravina sensed the anger in his voice. She had heard it many times before. It was usually a precursor to bouts of cursing and breaking furniture, and on occasion, physical violence. But then a sudden calmness came over him. I know the names of some people who are responsible for the death of Anya. You are responsible for the death of my angel. Your enemies murdered her. 
Your sins came home to roost, Virat. You just can't see it. And I pity you. You are wrong. Virat said, trying to remain calm. I have never done anything that could be traced back to you or the kids. I have never put my family in harm's way. Gravina began to say something, but her voice choked with grief. Anya wasn't killed by the mob or any of my enemies. I have no enemies because they're all dead. And I'm really good at my job, Virat said. Tears streamed down Ravina's cheeks. I have spent every hour of every day for the last four months searching for clues. And today, finally, I have some news. Ravina sobbed. I'm going to kill them, Ravina. I'm going to find all of their names, and I will kill them all. Then what? Will Anya come back? Will we get our lives back? You are the disease that destroyed us. Killing others won't help. Virat looked away and shuffled his feet uneasily. I hate you. If you hate me, why did you not ring the police all these years and tell them I am a hitman? Why? Her lips quivered. You are the darling of human rights activists in this city. The defender of the weak. The voice of the oppressed. Why did you not listen to your conscience and hand me in? He asked. She slammed the door in his face. She cursed the day she met Virat Nariman. She hated herself for still loving him. The names on the list. Roy and Sissy Augustine. They ran a grocery store near Chor Bazaar, not far from where Anya had gone missing. Nariman staked out the place that evening. His fingers were itching for the kill, but the streets were busy till 9.30 at night with shoppers looking for end-of-day bargains. He decided to wait till close of business. Late-night shopping was a curse to people in his line of work. The store was named Saviour Grocers. No one is going to save you, not even the good lord, Virat thought. The husband and wife team served customers diligently, and when it was quiet, the wife would go into the building and bring out tea and snacks for them. Roy Augustine was a lanky man who sported a scar on his right cheek, like someone had given him several cigarette burns in a row. He had a black bracelet on his left hand, and he wore the branded cap of a Premier League cricket team. He was shifty-eyed and rarely smiled as he interacted with the customers. Sissy was overweight, which was no surprise because she kept eating through the evening. She seemed to be older than Roy, but more active. Virat wondered whether she had was the brain behind the operation. He was also anxious to see whose name these souls might spit out once he started torturing them. 
Virat wasn't expecting any heavy resistance from the two, but he always believed in being prepared. So he checked his gun, this time a Desert Eagle that a client had given him for his exceptional service and skill, especially when it came to discarding bodies. Icy rivers, croc-infested swarms, big vats of acid. Virat had done it all. He reminisced about the time he had to get rid of another hitman who had executed the pregnant wife of a mob boss. The explicit order from the top was to torture the man before he died. So Virat drugged him while he was taking a nap in his car after a job, tied him up and drove up the mountain where he had previously spotted a cave full of rats on a hunting trip. He knew the rats were always hungry because the remains of the animals he left in there were stripped bare in a few hours. Every time, without fail. He threw the man in there and installed a small camera to tape the evidence for the boss. Virat camped outside and lamented about how his profession had fallen. He had a strict policy about not killing innocent people, women or children. And he couldn't believe that the scumbag who was being eaten alive by Rodens would take money to do in a helpless woman. A pregnant woman. Virat listened to the man screaming all night long as thousands of little teeth gnawed through his flesh. Sissy and Roy were worse than the hitman who lacked principles, according to Virat, not just because they had sent his daughter away to her doom, but because they drove around town looking for vulnerable girls. They sold the young ones to criminals who transported them around the country, used them and then dumped their bodies in a bin somewhere, like they were orphans like no one cared. They were the worst kind of scum, and they had to go. Virat was glad he had preserved the desert eagle for a special occasion. It was five minutes past ten. Husband and wife were starting to pack things away in preparation of closing the store. The streets were empty. Time to say hello, Virat thought. He attached a silencer to the gun. Roy Augustin watched his wife pack up at the end of the night. Goods in one hand, and an oily snack in another. She was the size of her truck now, he thought. He watched as she bit into the food, and oil and saliva ran down her chin. She wiped it with the back of her hand. When Roy first met her back in his hometown in Kerala, She was a pretty young girl who went to church in her white sari every Sunday. He thought she was an angel with a heart of gold. He thought that she was not going to pay any attention to a small-time crook like him. But it turned out she hailed from a family of criminals who hijacked trucks transporting alcohol to the northern ranges and sold it on the black market. He signed up for a few jobs with them and became part of the gang. When he had proven his worth, they even blessed his intentions to marry Sissy. Those were good times, he reminisced. Lots of money, good food and drinks. Their luck continued for a few more years, and then one day, Sissy's elder brother was arrested and sent to prison, where hired goons of the alcohol barons punished him for his transgressions with a steel pipe through his eyes. Her second brother vanished without a trace, and rumor had it that his siblings' killers threw him off a nearby cliff. Bad karma had caught up with both of them. 
But Roy was not a Buddhist. He didn't want karma to come knocking on his door with a steel pipe. So he forced Sissy to abandon her sick father and leave with him for Indraprastha city. She fell into a deep depression and started eating all the time. The angel he knew was gone. What he had here was a sick mess that guided him straight to the arms of sex traffickers, who dutifully informed him that his wife had inquired about business opportunities. Roy was furious that Sissy hadn't told him anything about it. Listen to what they have to say. When he heard their proposition, he stood up from his chair and walked out. Sissy followed him out of the room and said, I have suffered long enough. I have lost my brothers and I abandoned my father for you. I want money so that I can go back one day and seek revenge for what was done to my family. I will get those bastards one way or the other. I need your support on this. But this is kidnapping kids. What do you care? Bottles of rum? Piece of meat? Roy shook his head. I need you on this. I can't do this by myself. She said with hatred in her eyes. Look at me! I can't even work as a two-bit whore! Sissy did not have a maternal bone in her body. She couldn't have children. She wouldn't let him adopt one. But he was surprised that he would hurt young girls. I'm going to walk in there and say yes. All we need to do is get a girl 15 to 18 years old twice a month. I want to do this. The money is too good. I don't want to run a shitty grocery store for the rest of my life. Roy knew what he was getting into when he nodded. His life was a train wreck he couldn't stop. He only knew poverty, only knew the trappings of a vile world where anything goes and principles don't matter. He was stupid for thinking that he could leave it all behind. He knew trouble would come looking for them one day. He just didn't realize that it was walking towards him with a loaded gun that very second. Virat placed the gun on Roy's head and asked Sissy to step inside the store. He then pulled down the shutter to keep away unwanted visitors. They went through a door into a room with wall-to-wall storage and sacks of food produce. A fine powder of flour covered everything in the room. There was a small room towards the right, and Virat guided the shocked couple through the narrow door. There was a table and two chairs and a fridge with a small TV on top of it. Vidat made the couple sit down. Roy was shaking gently, but Sissy just fixed Virat with a cold stare. Now, I know what you do and how you do it, so let's cut out the claims of innocence. I want you to tell me where you keep the girls once you kidnap them. Roy and Sissy remained silent. Virat could see their brains working overtime. Okay, Virat said, and broke Roy's kneecap with the butt of his gun. Roy cried and shouted for help. Virat slapped him and then pulled out a handkerchief from his pocket and stuffed it into his mouth. He turned his attention to Sissy. Where is it? She looked away. Virat examined the room closely. He spotted a small trapdoor partially hidden underneath the fridge. 
His eyes were good at detecting details even in a semi-little room, and the couple had gotten so cocky about their little operation they hadn't bothered to conceal it properly. Virat walked to the fridge, threw the TV on top of it to the floor, and moved the fridge to the side. Don't try anything funny, he said, waving his gun at them. He opened the door and peered into the darkness. He pulled out his pocket torch. There was a small mattress, a bucket, and a small hole in the ground, presumably a toilet. You put my daughter down there. You made her drink out of a bowl like a dog. Made her sleep next to a shithole so that you could sell her to some animals? He pulled out a photo he had taken of her decapitated corpse. And this is where the journey that began in this little pit of yours ended. He was not responsible, Sissy said, looking at Roy. First, you need to tell me who you supply the girls to. Virat's vision blurred for a second, and his head felt light. He took a deep breath and steadied himself. His blood was close to boiling point. Roy made frantic sounds muffled by the kerchief. Virat pulled it out abruptly. Roy cried in surprise and then pleaded with his wife. Tell him, tell him, darling. Tell him what he wants to know. I, I want this nightmare to end. He's going to kill us whether we tell him or not, she responded. Virat pressed his gun on Roy's forehead. Till death tears you apart. Suddenly, Sissy pulled a knife she had taped under the table, presumably for eventualities such as this one, and lunged at Virat. Virat sidestepped her and drilled his hard fist into her belly. Sissy doubled over in pain, but still held firmly onto the knife. Sissy swung the knife up in an attempt to stab Virat in his groin, but he blocked her with an open fist and drove his knee into the side of her face. Sissy reeled back against the wall pressing her free hand to her face. Virat watched Roy make an attempt to stand up from the corner of his eye, but the injured man soon gave up. Sissy raised the knife to her neck and sliced it open. The knife fell on the ground with a clatter. Her body slowly slid down the wall and onto the floor. Sissy! Sissy! Roy called out to her. She lay in a pool of blood. I had told her not to get into this. I told her the devil will come calling one day. You have nothing to lose, friend. Tell me everything. Roy looked at his wound, which bled profusely. Roy detailed how the kidnapped girls were taken to Ranjaseth's brothel. Customers go to Setji and he delivers the package all around the country. Thanks, Rory. You have done well. Virat readied his gun. Roy looked pitifully at his dead wife, tears streaming down his cheek, the blood flow from his legs starting to slow down. Do you believe in God, Mr. Roy? Roy cried. You better believe in him, Roy. Because I am your deliverance. Virat thought about using the gun, 
but he didn't want police to find bullets from Roy's charred body. So with a heavy heart, he pulled out his dagger and placed it behind Roy's neck and pushed it in with a smile. Erard splashed fuel from one of the cans in the storage room on all the walls and the dry goods and lit the fire with the silver Harley-Davidson lighter he carried, an old gift from his estranged son. The whole store went up in flames by the time he started his car. Erard listened to the approaching sirens as he drove off. Gulab's kidnappers had blindfolded and gagged her before throwing her into the back of a van. After a short journey, the vehicle came to a stop, and unknown hands forced her down, and a voice threatened to choke her if she made any sound. She soon joined the other girls in a corridor where she was given back the gift of speech and sight. She counted fifteen girls of different ages, mostly older than her. They looked at her with fear. She cried. No one consoled her. Two men armed with machetes watched over the girls. One of them asked her to shut up. She wondered about her parents. Surely they would have gone to the police who would be looking for her. After a while, the girls were taken to a large room with several cells, each with four bunker beds, a stainless steel tap, a sink, and an open toilet with a mug. The cell stank of piss and shit and despair. She was pushed into one of them. Two other girls stared at her, frightened and shivering from within its confines. The guard closed and locked the door to the cell and left the room. Gulab held onto the steel bars. A small halogen lamp lit the room with an eerie glow. What is your name? A voice asked. Gulab turned around to answer the person. The girl was in her early twenties, with curly hair and sad eyes, dressed in a pink t-shirt and jeans. Gulab, yours? Sushma. And you are? Gulab asked the other girl. Radha, the other girl said, and then she lay down on one of the beds with her back to them. Where did they kidnap you from? Gulab asked Sushma. I was on my way back from college. Sushma broke down. Gulab hugged her. My father wouldn't have slept a wink or eaten anything without me. I don't know how many days it has been since. Sushma said. I was sold to Rajasit's men by my uncle. He owes them money. Tatha said. Why didn't your parents stop your uncle? Gulab asked. Tatha sat up, looked at the floor and hesitated before she answered. Because they are both dead. Gulab sat next to Ratha and gently placed a hand on her shoulder. What do you think will happen to us? Sushma asked. I don't know, Gulab said. I know, but I don't want to talk about it, Dartha said, and then she lay down again. Gulab watched a moth flying frantically around the light bulb. 
There was no salvation for anyone here. Nirmala was pruning the bonsai that Virat had gifted her for her birthday when he grabbed her from behind and carried her to the bedroom. She squealed all the way. He dropped her on the bed and removed the bathrobe she was dressed in. She giggled and wrapped her hands around her breasts. Virat took in the sight of her voluptuous body. His erection strained against his jeans. He removed his tank top and jeans and started kissing her from her neck to the side of her hips. She traced her fingers up and down her body, arousing his desire even more. He took her fingers in his mouth and sucked on it. She used the wetness of his saliva to moisten her sex and spread its lips. He mounted her with a ferocious urgency that made her gasp. She was always surprised by the passion that she aroused in him. He journeyed deeper into her soft pleasure, changing the rhythm of his strokes and building crescendos. Once he had gifted her with an orgasm that tore through her body, he came inside her with a ferocious scream, expanding all his longing, all his hunger. They lay in each other's arms afterwards, feeling the softness of each other's skin, the bliss of their connection. The phone rang. Nirmala looked at the number and immediately sat up. It's from the hospital. Mummy? She looked worried. Nirmala's mother suffered from severe dementia and lived in a special institution. She occasionally got phone calls from the carers at the facility if her condition worsened. I have to go, but my car is still at the service centre, honey, she said. I will drop you off, Virat said. You are the best, she said and kissed him. They dressed quickly and Virat drove Nirmala to the centre that was about ten kilometres from his suburb. When they got there, Virat opened the door and let her out. You sure you don't want to come? she asked. You always ask me that, Virat said with a smile. Okay, she said and blew him a kiss and walked towards the building. Virat sat there watching her. He had never visited Nirmala's mother because he didn't want to be reminded of his own mother, who had severe dementia in her dying days. In fact, he didn't want to remember her at all. A devout Hindu, she would conduct two pujas every day and spend all her savings on temple committees. She pretended she had a strict moral code and great values. But young Virat knew it was a charade. Even before the murder of his young brother and his father's incarceration, his mother was bedding strangers in abandoned sheds and in the bushes. He never mentioned it because she was a disciplined Nazi at home. She would make him stand in front of the Shiva statue and beat him black and blue with a cane for even the smallest of offences. He still had the marks on his body from those days. She rarely had a kind word or hug for him. As she grew older... She grew more withdrawn and bitter. Virat left home when he was 24, and he had very little to do with her since. His mother never remarried after his father's death. He thought it was appropriate that her memory had vanished in the final years. She probably didn't have anything worthwhile to remember anyways. Virat felt like his head was about to explode with rage at the thought of the abuse he suffered as a child. 
He was usually cheerful after a kill. He certainly was after last night's. But now the memory of his mother had turned his thoughts sour. He needed the gym badly. Virat was working out in the gym when he received a text from Ravina. You know the blood of whoever you are slain to deal with your guilt is not going to bring us peace. He deleted the message in disgust. He couldn't understand why Ravina didn't trust him. It was not like he was a common street thug. She knew who he was. She knew he was good at his job. His cold efficiency and determination is what attracted her to him in the first place. Twenty years ago, he was working as a laborer by day and a paid killer by night, training under the watchful eyes of his uncle. Arya, his uncle, a newspaper agent slash contract killer, taught Virat the importance of leading a dual life where the consequences of one did not bleed into the other. But Virat failed. He had never known love from his family, and when he encountered a beautiful young secretary at the office of an export company where he worked, he let his guard down. He shouldn't have fallen in love with her, never had a family with her. His anger and anguish from his dysfunctional childhood could not be contained by just the thrill of the kill. It spilled over into his home life as angry outbursts. He loved his children, but the fact that Ravina never grew to accept him the way he was upset him. He didn't need messages like this when he was preparing for his next victim. The brothel owner, Rancha said. Rancha said would surely know the name of the other players, and Virat was looking forward to hearing them. He cared about justice, even if Anya's mother didn't, and revenge was justice. Ravina checked her phone incessantly, expecting a reply for the message she sent Virat. She gave up after a while. It was her day off, and she sat sipping coffee at the dining table. Ravina reminisced about the tall, handsome man she met when she was 18 at her first job as a secretary. He worked in the loading area of the transport logistics company and started talking to Ravina on a daily basis as she walked into the office. The boss, a sleazeback who had his eyes on Ravina, saw Virat as a threat and promptly fired him. This only helped in bringing them closer, as Ravina, racked by guilt that talking to her had cost his job, began to entertain his company. In the beginning, it was not love. She just liked his sense of humor and their movie nights and trips to the cafe strip by the beach. They watched the sunset drinking cappuccinos and talking about things that interested them. Slowly but surely, Virat opened up about his abusive parents and a dreadful childhood and later confessed that he had a criminal background. Ravina felt sorry for the hurt soul before her. Ravina had hippie parents who were animal rights activists and celebrated public displays of affection. They loved Virat like their own son. Homely dinners and gifts during festivals made Virat feel like he had found a new home. Devina, who was a social activist, painter, and all-round superhuman being, saw him as a project to fix. 
but what she did not realize was that some things can't be fixed. Some people are natural-born killers. Virat did what he did, not because he had to, because he enjoyed it. An abusive father and a religion-mad mother had brought him up in an atmosphere of violence. That is all he knew. By the time Ravina realized this, it was too late. She was pregnant. She was trapped. Once she tried to leave him, and Virat firmly placed a gun to her head and promised her that he wouldn't think twice before shooting her if she left him. Any normal human being would have called the police after an incident like that, but Ravina saw in his actions the depth of his problems and resolved to love him even more. It took two kids and an abusive marriage that lasted for 20 years for her to realize her error in judgment. His angry ways at home, the sin of murder that he carried in his soul, and the possibility that he might have been responsible for the death of Anya made her hate him even more. But she still hoped he would return from the darkness. She thought of sending another message, but decided against it. A text message beeped on her phone. She opened it eagerly. It was from Praveen. Hi, Mum. Need some money. The usual pitch, Ravina thought. Where are you? She texted. In Karwal. What are you doing interstate? Artist's workshop. Everyone in the country knew that Karwal was the drug capital of the nation. A lawless district where brutal drug cartels waged war to import drugs from Afghanistan and Pakistan and flood the product in the market. Things were so bad that sometimes the central government would send in the army to quell the daily gang shootings and assassinations. The favourite method of punishment for the cartels was to chop someone's head off and then dissolve their body in acid. The head was then displayed in public places as a warning to those who dare to oppose the might of the gangs. Get out of there, son. Please listen to mummy. I can't. I need cash. Starving. Praveen was a bright and active child in school with a great talent for art. But in his teen years, he started distancing himself from his angry father and the family itself. He discovered drugs at rave parties. Virat's solution for the problem was asserting more power and authority on him. Praveen rebelled. He was as stubborn as his father. Ravina was stuck between the two, helpless, unable to fill their heads with any sense. And just as she feared, Praveen left home once he turned 18 and worked as a freelance artist to fund his drug habit. You always defended him when I tried to straighten things up. Now suffer, Virat said when he first heard of the news. Since then, father and son had barely spoken to each other. Over the years, the gulf between them had widened so much that even after their divorce, Praveen refused to visit their family home. This used to be Satan's abode, he would tell her. In the last five years, Ravina was by his side when he overdosed and was rushed to the emergency room, more times than she could care to remember. She convinced him to go to rehab a few times, but he always fell back into his old habit. He didn't even come for Anya's funeral. His only comment on the phone was, Satan got her killed. Then he wept like a child. Presently, she texted back. I will send some money. Use it for food. Come back soon. Thanks, Mum. I will. She knew it was a lie. 
She had a feeling that he would never return. She had a vision of Praveen in dirty clothes shooting up with other junkies. She looked at a photograph of her angelic boy standing cheerfully next to Anya, healthy and vibrant, a memory from a long time ago. She wiped her tears. Then she made some oats and sat down to read a new story about two charred bodies found in a burned-down store near Chor Bazaar. Ranchestad was down at the basement to inspect the new batch of girls. He was in his early fifties, but a full head of carefully dyed hair made him look younger. He had the serene face of a spiritually satisfied yogi. Sait was not fond of his rather wide nostrils and thick eyebrows. He was a short man with robust features, and he walked with a slight limp on account of his left leg being shorter than the right. He wore no jewellery or watch, which was unusual for a person of his stature in his community. Three men with machetes hanging by their belts herded the girls into a corner. The hapless weeping creatures looked emaciated. It will take a lot of food and cosmetics to get you in shape, Rancher said in disgust, as he fixed his white silk shirt on Thothi. He spat the pan he was chewing into a brass vessel his personal assistant Hadi was carrying. Put that on the ground and start taking pictures for the database, he barked at Hadi. Hadi was in his late thirties, and he wore a white shirt and pants with a garish red belt that barely contained his bulging belly. He had severe acne scarring on his face, and was always self-conscious of how he looked. He placed the brass vessel on the ground, and picked the camera slung over his shoulders and walked towards the girls. Hadi adjusted his glasses. Move in front of the screen, one at a time, please, he said, pointing to a white canvas background attached to one of the walls. He switched on two lights suspended from the ceiling. Each girl moved in front of the backdrop, and Hadi snapped a picture. They were then asked to rejoin the group. Smile, Hadi said every time he clicked. What are you doing? Taking their wedding shots? Most of our customers are sick fucks. They want to see these girls just as they are, miserable and beaten up, Rancha said. Rancha said laughed along with his three goons. Hadi grinned. That is all he could do. He felt sorry for the girls, but Seiji didn't pay him to have a bleeding heart. The next girl who stood in front of the canvas refused to smile. Smile! Smile! Hadi repeated. She broke down and sat on the floor crying. Get up! Get up, darling! Hadi said. He stepped forward to give her a hand, but Vancha said pulled him back. You stupid whore! Dancha said as he kicked the girl on her chest. She fell back with a big scream. The other girls joined in and started wailing. Give it to me! Rancha said, said, extending his arm towards one of the goons. They passed him a machete. Rancha said, pulled the girl's left hand and placed the machete on it. If you waste my time, I will chop you to bits and leave you in this basement to rot. Do as you are told. The girl begged for her life. Get up, you swine. He pulled her arm and stood her up. Take her picture, he said to Hari. Hadi complied with displeasure. The girl forced a smile, tears streaming down her face, her eyes filled with terror. Another girl moved in front of the screen, ready for her shot. She looked underage and wore a blue top and skirt, 
which was torn in places. Her hair was tied in a ponytail. She shielded her almond-shaped eyes from the bright light. What is your name? Anderson asked. She did not say anything. Tell him your name, darling, Harry encouraged her. Kul, Kulab. Nice name, Rancha said. Harry, come here. When Harry came closer, Rancha put his hand on Harry's shoulder and said in a low tone, Email the photo of this one to Kalisab. I have a feeling he will like it. Harry smiled and shook his head. Harry's phone rang. He answered it. Rancha did not like the look on Harry's face a minute into the call. Harry hung up and wiped off the beads of sweat that had formed on his forehead. What happened? Sissy and Hubby died in a fire. Oh, what a shame. Any foul play? All the oils they had in their business, the, the police aren't calling it suspicious. They were good. But I used to tell them to move from that dump. Not surprised that it caught fire. Harry kept nodding, as if the very movement of his head could conjure the dead souls back to life. Did they find any evidence linking them to us? It was a bad fire. They barely managed to find parts of the charred bodies. All's well then. Nanchasit's family was in the business of selling sex for the last hundred years. He had proudly inherited the business from his father at the age of 22. He ran the largest brothel in Darya Ganj, the famous red district in Indraprastha city. His grandfather operated out of a double-storied haveli in the heart of the city, with murals and glass chandeliers and gold-plated decorations on the wall. His father felt that a place of business where sex was sold for an hourly rate did not warrant the furnishings of a five-star hotel, so he moved to a converted warehouse in the Ganj, which was, at the turn of the century, an industrial zone full of clothing mills. He added two more floors to the building over a decade. Business was flourishing thanks to the construction boom that brought migrants into the city with cash to spend and lonely nights to negotiate. When Ranchaset took over, he bought the adjacent blocks and expanded the customer base. Each building catered to a specific class of clients, and he made sure that this was reflected in the comfort level. The ones reserved for wealthy businessmen, crime bosses and politicians had air conditioning and themed rooms with velvet furnishing. But his crowning achievement was when he took the commerce online to provide escort services. He was also happy to look after special requests, including underage girls. He ran an online forum where clients who paid an exorbitant amount for subscription could leave requests, and one of Ranjasit's client service managers would call them to organize further payment and delivery. He was all about customer satisfaction, but he also impressed upon them the hardship involved in procuring quality products especially when he was catering to people with special demands. In his father's time, most of the girls came from poor families. With women getting more educated, Rancha had to rely on the wives and daughters of poor farmers or labourers for services, often through coercion. 
His usual strategy was to get the desperate into a debt and force them into slavery to pay off their dues. Sourcing meat for the special clients was tough business, but they spent a lot of money to indulge in their perversions, so Dancha never refused. The thing with special clients was that they never returned the girls in good condition. Dancha did not have an issue with resorting to violence, but cleaning up the mess was better left to the professionals. That is why he outsourced the purchase and disposing of the girls. Sai Kali Bhakt, or Kali Saab as he was known, was the answer to his prayers. He was in the business of dispatching and eliminating, and they prospered together. Five years later, Rancha was making him so much money that Kali Saab sent him a golden sword with the inscription, Jewel in my crown. Rancha was moved, but he also paid a huge amount to utilize Kali Saab's services, and it was not like they gave him a discount for being a platinum member. Occasionally, Kali Saab would request his network to keep an eye out for underage girls who shined like diamonds as he used to say. No one asked what he did with them or why they disappeared without a trace. Rumor had it that Kali Bhakt was into black magic and the young virgins were not exactly headed to a happy place. When Rancha saw the girl named Gulab, he knew this was a present for his benefactor. I might even get another golden sword, Rancha thought. Virat had been scoping the joint for a few days now, and he realized that entering the brothel and getting to Danjaset was immensely difficult. The three buildings that Danjaset owned were in a walled compound with a guardhouse where three guys with machetes and handguns were stationed 24-7. A bodyguard, nearly as tall as Virat and built like a brick-shit house, and a personal assistant who grinned like an idiot in his nerdy glasses, always shadowed Rancha Set. Set worked every day from 8am to 6pm, except on Thursday when he stayed back until 8pm, the day when a delivery truck arrived like clockwork at 7.30pm and left after Set had departed, almost trailing him for some distance before it headed off towards the eastern ring road and onto the highway. Rancha travelled in an armoured BMW SUV and Virat wouldn't have been surprised if the bodyguard knew some defensive driving. Rancha and his entourage always emerged from the underground car park of the brothel and then signed out at the gate before heading off. Sniping was out of question because Virat had questions. Sait never went out for parties or for a jog. He never stopped the car to buy pavdaji from a store. Nada. Virat did not like his chances. He liked clean kills, safe missions. This was not going to be one of those. Virat visited the corporation office's dusty archives, a basement-level library of old files and microfilms, and dug up the plans for the building. He took photocopies of the sections he needed, and took them home to study closely. There was no way into the underground basement other than through the shuttered entrance next to the guard post and a stairwell inside the building, and the only vehicles allowed in or out were Rancheset's personal car and the delivery truck. 
A plan started to take shape in his mind. It was risky, but it was the only way to do it. He googled the address for Ayer and Sons Transportation. He would have to find a way to get underneath that truck. Kulab and two other girls were loaded onto a truck at the brothel and driven several hours to the east. At their destination, men who had rifles slung on their shoulders dragged them out of the truck. She noted that they were in a compound full of trucks with the branding Ayer and Sons Transport. A large warehouse and a small office attached to it stood at the back of the compound. They were taken to a tin shed near the warehouse. It contained a small toilet, steel wash basin and wooden cupboard full of dirty linen. The other two girls, tired and emotionally exhausted from the ordeal, fell asleep on tiny plastic mats and dirty pillows. Gulab sat on the ground watching the sparse room and the sleeping girls. She strained to catch the sounds outside. Trucks driving in and out, doors slamming, someone shouting into a phone. The memory of her parents brought tears to her eyes. She covered her mouth and cried silently. The crickets chirped away, almost drowning the muffled conversations coming from the warehouse. Several hours later, when it grew dark, Gulab heard the guard posted outside the metal shed walk away. She stood up slowly, without waking the other girls, and tiptoed towards the door. She decided to try her luck and open the door. She turned the knob, and to her surprise, it was open. That's odd, she thought. She peeked around the corner. No guards in sight. She stepped out and closed the door quietly. If she tried to take the other girls with her, she might not be able to escape. Her plan was to sneak past the guards and reach the road where she would flag down a car and then proceed to inform the police. She stood listening for sounds. Nothing. Not even the wind moved in the trees. The warehouse, the office and the yard full of trucks looked abandoned. She walked slowly through the maze of trucks, scanning for movement, while trying not to lose her sense of direction. Her heart was pounding so loud she thought the guards would hear it and pounce on her at any moment. She couldn't go through the gate because it would surely be manned. The walls around the compound were too tall for her to climb. God will show me a way, she prayed. She cleared the last truck and came to a halt. She looked left, then right. The gate looked like it was partially open from where she stood. Where did her captors go? Maybe they fled, she hoped. She ran towards the closest wall and crept towards the gate. She was breathing faster. I might escape this ordeal after all, she thought. The unmanned half-open gates within an arm's reach. Then a loud bang. Cement and rocks splitting and stinging her face. The headlights of some of the parked trucks came on, and raucous laughter of men filled the air. A guard stepped in through the gate and closed it behind him. He was hysterical with laughter. Two men, who were clearly not security, walked towards her, deliberately. The older of the two men who approached Gulab was bald 
and wore a check shirt and white dhoti with a red tikka on his head. His face was clean-shaven and his features almost feminine. Next to him was a younger version of himself in t-shirt and jeans. This young man had a thin moustache. They both sported expensive jewellery. Father and son, Gulab guessed. The father was uncomfortably close to her while the son stood a few steps behind him, his arms crossed, watching her intently with a smile. We do this every time we have a fresh batch, the father said. It's good value. The lads also take bets on who will be the first person to try to walk out of the door. The young man could barely contain himself. Wishful thinking, holding on to hope. These are not good things for a person in your position. You must accept your fate, the father continued. Gulab stood frozen on the spot. The gunshot was still ringing in her ears, and she could smell the gunpowder. We have a good operation here. Middle of nowhere, a couple of kilometers from the highway. He talked to Gulab as if he were a realtor trying to make a sale. Which means no one will hear us when we indulge in a bit of fun and games. She heard a vehicle pull up in front of the gate. The father put his hands on her shoulders. You are special. That van out there is waiting for you. You are not like these other girls. What is going to happen to them? The man smiled. What a kind soul you are. Concerned about the welfare of others. No wonder Ranjaji sent you as a special gift for Kali Sahib. Who is he? Where are you taking me? He is a very nice man. You will see. You will see. I don't want to spoil any surprises for you. Gulab shivered in fear. Raju and Sonu will make sure you reach the big man without a single scratch, he said, looking behind her. Two of the ugliest guys she had ever seen, with oily hair, combed slick, and a face full of pimples, had crept up behind her without making a noise. They grinned at her with their tobacco-stained teeth. Gulab looked around for an escape route. She counted at least three guards with rifles. They would drop her if she tried to pull anything fancy. A mobile phone rang. The son listened and then approached the father hastily and whispered something in his ears. Tell him I will call our people. They won't have any troubles, the older man responded. The son nodded animatedly to indicate he understood perfectly well. Time to go, honey he said to Gulab with a fake smile. Raju and Sonu looked like stick insects, but they grabbed her with an iron grip and took her to the black van with tinted doors. They slid the door open, shoved her into the seat and slammed it shut. Her journey to hell was not over. She wasn't sure how long she was going to be able to take this.
Chaman Lal, the bodyguard Virat had seen protecting Ranjaset, was a faithful dog. The son of a failed wrestler, raised in a poor village. His penchant for violence had made him legendary from a very young age when he threw the local circle inspector's son into a well for looking at him the wrong way. Ranjaset's father had discovered the angry young man fighting underground boxing matches and whiling his life away dealing drugs to tourists. Sometimes in his line of work, he needed muscle to intimidate and even execute threats. So he introduced Chaman to the big league. Chaman used to call him Babuji and would have gladly taken a bullet for the man. You are the only father I have ever known, Babuji, he used to say. When Rancha took over after his father's death, Chaman became his shadow, a giant figure that loomed next to him wherever he went. And no one dared to mock or attack Ranjaset, who had a vicious dog on his leash. Presently, Chaman was stripped to his vest and a small pair of shorts. He was six feet five, with a broad back, rock-solid shoulders, arms the size of tree trunks, and intimidating chest muscles. A hapless middle-aged father, who had come searching for his daughter after hearing that she had been forced to work in a brothel, was tied up upside down from the ceiling. Chaman was whipping the man with a belt. I warned you. I asked you to leave. Instead, you chose to snoop around. Blood from the wounds on the man's back caked his hair. Some of it dripped on the floor and formed a crimson stain that looked like a flower. When you were caught by one of the guards, you threatened to go to the police and left me with no choice. The man spat on Chaman. Chaman resumed whipping and the man screamed louder every time the brown belt landed on his raw skin. You will probably die today. With that attitude of yours, I can't see how I can stop now. Ranjaset entered the room. Chaman stopped his attack. What is going on here? Some weekday entertainment for you, Chaman? Sergi. Chaman nodded respectfully. You son of a bitch, the injured man said. Ranjaset grabbed the bleeding man by his hair and said, Call me that again, and I will... Chop your head off, clean from your torso, and feed it to my dogs. You are monsters. You haven't seen the monster yet, Rancher said. He looked at the hammer lying on the table, and then at Chaman. My daughter, the man lamented. Your daughter is a prostitute now. <laughs> Dancha wiped his bloody hand on the wall and stepped away towards an open window. He surveyed his empire. Everything is as it should be, he thought. The man screamed for the last time as Chaman Lal planted the hammer in his skull. Virat trailed the delivery truck to map the stops the driver made before he reached the underground car park. As luck would have it, the driver, a skinny man who wore a turban 
and a kurta pajama too big for him. Always spend 20 minutes of quality time with a married woman before making his way to Rajaset's brothel. A quiet suburban street was just what Virat needed to slide under the truck and hook onto its underside with specialized clamps. Laduvinayak, thus named for his round, clean head and big fat belly and love for the sweet yellow delicacy, was his go-to person for the specialized piece of equipment. He supplied Virat with guns and gadgets. Virat never used the same weapon for two jobs, because it was the easiest way to get caught. A short call to Vinayak's mobile armory, and he would bring his van to one of the desolate areas in the city, and provide Virat with precision weapons smuggled from across the borders, with their serial numbers removed. Laduvinayak's real expertise was in customized equipment like the clamp. All Virat needed to do was mention the necessity, and Vinayak, who was an ugly father of invention, would make one for him. The driver climbed into the truck after his quickie, and soon they were on their way. The quality of the steel clamps and its soft leather handles and footholds meant Virat had a not-so-difficult trip to the underground car park. The guards at the gate, who were used to signing in the truck every week, didn't bother to check underneath. Virat had the loaded gun out and ready, just in case. He was getting into that underground car park, one way or the other. Once inside, as soon as the truck stopped, he dropped off and rolled to the side of the truck. Just as the driver got down, he tripped the man and slammed his head against the wall. The driver slid down, unconscious. Vidat karate chopped him on the back of his head for a good measure and left his body underneath the truck. Then he waited patiently. A solid 15 minutes later, he heard the sounds of a door opening and footsteps approaching. Vidat waited with bated breath. Hari was sick of both Adanchaset and Chamanlal teasing him because he wouldn't have sex with any of the working girls. It is your small dick, right? Adanchaset said. Chaman roared with laughter. If he had the guts, Hari would have pulled a gun out and popped the two in their faces. Suddenly, he heard a whoosh and felt a sharp pain in his neck. Something warm flowed down his neck, and soon his shirt was drenched, and he started to choke on his blood. Seth and Chamanlal stared at Hadi in horror as he went down. Hadi's last wish before his life ebbed away was that the two pricks got what they deserved. Once Virat had brought down the secretary, Hari, he shot Sedji in his left kneecap. Set fell on the ground, holding his injured leg and wailing. The Beretta with the phantom AC silencer kept the sound of the shot well within the walls of the underground car park, which in turn contained most of the noise because of its thick walls. Chamanlal rushed towards Virat 
and the crazy move caught him off guard. Mirat's shot missed its intended destination, Lanchaset's chest, and hit the large bodyguard on his left shoulder. It barely slowed down the giant as he leapt for Virat. Virat was surprised by Chaman's speed. He then sidestepped Chaman and tripped him. The gunda fell face first on the ground. Virat heard a sickening sound as his opponent's teeth met the concrete floor. Virat quickly walked over and pumped two bullets in the back of his head. Set, meanwhile, had started to scream and shout for help. But very little sound escaped the underground level. He was crawling towards the door to the stairwell that led into the building. Virat walked up to him and said, We need to talk. Francis said, reiterated, that he would give Virat as much money as he wanted. Virat let the brothel king plead for a while before lying to him that he was just looking for his daughter. You are going to die unless you tell me who the other players are. I need to get my girl back. I can't, I can't. They will torture me to death. No, that is my job. Virat pressed the gun into Dancha's wounded leg. He screamed. You have no choice, my friend. Have you... Have you got a... Have you got a photograph? Ranja could barely spit out the question because of the pain. Virat produced one that he kept in his wallet at all times. A shot of himself flexing his biceps for the camera, with Anya making a funny face next to him. It was taken at a picnic six months ago. Vidart looked fondly at the image. He showed it to Dancha. Dancha's eyes widened as he studied the photograph carefully. Then he gulped, and his hands started shaking. <laughs> she is. She is here. She is here, just upstairs. Uh, allow me to speak to my men, and they will bring her down for you, Danja said. Virat slapped him five times across the face and watched the powerful man cry like a little boy. Don't lie to me. I know she is not alive. I buried her. I... I... <laughs> Danja said looked like a man who had lost big at the races. What is it? Minot growled. She was, she was sent to Kali Saab as a gift. Who delivered her to him? I don't know. I will tear your fucking face off if you don't tell me. Dancer pressed his hands together and pleaded. How do I get to this man? Oh, I, I don't know. Virat slammed the butt of the gun into Danchaset's wound, making him bleed even more. I swear, I swear, I don't know where. Danja wailed. Virat knew the man was telling the truth. He would just have to follow the trail of his daughter to get to the man. Where did you send my daughter from here? Danja pointed to the truck. So the truck does not deliver food, 
<laughs> it takes the girls that our customers order to the central depot and they are they're transported from there to different parts of the country. My year and sons, they are in this game. Without their trucks, we would never be able to expand our business beyond this state. Vidat suddenly had an idea. He checked inside the truck and found a Garmin GPS unit. All he had to do was hack into the device and track its destination. One more thing. Are any girls locked up down here? Inside, Seth pointed to a steel door. Down the stairs, and then to the right. Virat couldn't risk going into the hall brothel and freeing girls, but he wanted to save the ones he could. I can, I can take you there, said Offord, with a smile drenched in tears. That won't be needed. You are going somewhere else. Vidar remembered the driver throwing a rope into the back of the truck earlier. He walked around the truck while keeping an eye on Rancher and grabbed it. With the rope around his shoulder like a long coiled snake, he grabbed Rancher by the collar and dragged him for some distance. Rancher whimpered and pissed his pants. Virat threw the rope over a crossbeam and made a noose on one end and put it around Ranchaset's neck. This is going to feel good for me and bad for you. Rancher tried to scream as loud as he could, but Virat broke his front teeth with a strong blow and he started to spit and cough blood and saliva. Virat then pulled Rancher up and held him there watching his body flail as he desperately tried to undo the complicated knot around his neck. <coughs> die. 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 Vidat kept saying in his mind. Die. Seth stopped struggling after a while. Vidat let the body drop to the ground. He took the keys on Chaman's dead body and approached the steel door. There were three girls in the cells. They looked fearfully at him but said nothing. Don't be afraid. Follow me. I will take you home. He shot the locks and led them out and led them to the truck. The girls looked at the bloody body scattered around the floor in horror. One of them walked up to Danchisette's body and spat on it. It's okay. Climb in, Virat said. They quietly climbed into the back of the truck. Just then, Virat heard the steel shutter to the car park open. The guards must have grown suspicious when Danchis's car didn't leave at the usual time. Virat started the truck and drove straight at the steel shutter. He hit the guard waiting outside head-on, and the thug was stuck to the front of the vehicle for a while, before he disappeared underneath it. Virat heard the girl screaming at the back. 
Sorry for the rough ride, girls, he said. The other two guards started firing at him from within the guardhouse with their pistols, and the bullets shattered the front window. Virat reversed and rammed the guardhouse at maximum speed. The truck managed to decimate half the structure made from cheap plywood in an instant. Virat heard a few satisfying crunching noises as his wheels ran over the two attackers. Then he pulled back and drove out of the compound, taking the gate with him for some distance before it fell off. He rode the damaged vehicle to a quiet industrial area some five kilometers away from the brothel. He gave the girls some money and asked them to catch a cab. They thanked him profusely. One fell on his feet and cried. Virat lifted her up and said, I am freeing my Anya. That is the best I can do, he thought. He watched the girls jog towards the main street, looking for a rickshaw or a cab. Virat then pulled the GPS unit out of the truck. The police may look for the truck, and the owners of the truck would get suspicious if it didn't return on time. He had a narrow window of time to get to the depot and find some answers. He pulled out a logbook from the glove box and checked the roster. The truck wasn't expected until late afternoon the next day. He exited the truck and started walking north. He got into his car, parked a few streets away, and sat looking at the city lights brightening the night sky. Then he cried. He had never cried in his life. Even on that dreadful morning, he had gone to see his baby's body. Virat had a wonderful Sunday with Anya, taking her shopping and watching two back-to-back rom-coms with her and Nirmala in his apartment. He slept through most of it, and when he woke up, the girls were laughing at him. They had decorated his face with caramel popcorn. He had kissed Anya when she left and asked her to be safe. I'm a big girl, Daddy. Stop worrying about me, she had said to him. Yes, Viru, stop mollycoddling her. Nirmala slapped his arm playfully. He watched her walk down the stairs, looking back a few times, blowing kisses at him. If he knew it was going to be the last time he saw her, he would have asked her to stay back. The next day he had a job in the neighboring city, getting rid of an accountant who had screwed over thousands of innocent families and not-so-innocent mobsters by siphoning off their cash to the Cayman Islands. A safekeeper can never afford to betray his wards. And in this instance, he found Virat garroting him as he ate cheeseburger and fries in his car, 100 kilometers out of Indraprastha, on his way to a safe haven. Nowhere was safe when Virat was on the job. Virat drove the body to the dock, dragged it aboard one of the mob's ferries, and asked the captain to take them to the sea. He cut open the accountant's tummy so that the gases would escape once the body started decomposing, so that the body wouldn't become a floater. Virat saw several missed calls 
and a voicemail on his phone when he reached shore. It was Ravina. She was frantic. Anya was not home and she wasn't responding to phone calls. Vidar got back on land and raced home immediately. He used all his contacts, all his energy, non-stop for seven days in vain to trace her. One week later, a policeman who was a friend of the mob passed on a message of a dead body found in a dumpster outside a small indie cinema in a bohemian part of the city. Virat stood in front of the body as the police went about their business, dusting for prints, bagging evidence. He knew they wouldn't find anything, and even if they did, nothing would happen to the people involved. This was a country run by criminals, some wearing white starched kurtas, some wearing uniforms, some wearing suits, and some wearing hoods. A wave of nausea washed over him. He clenched his jaw shut and pressed his hands to the side of his hips. He watched as they placed her torso carefully on the trolley, followed by her head. His little princess. His angel. He saw terror in her dead eyes. The horror of that sight would never leave him. Presently, Virat stopped crying. He sipped some whiskey from his stainless steel flask. He hacked into the GPS unit from the truck and got the coordinates for the depot, which came up as Iron Sons Transport Home. Then he rang Leduvenaik and asked him to wait at a certain spot on the highway with plastic explosives and digital timers. Virat checked the mirror. His eyes were red with rage. The tears had dried on his face. <laughs>